Well, turn to your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Matthew, chapter 19. And we're going to continue with a series that we began a couple of weeks ago called Building a Firm Foundation. And we're talking about six crucial beliefs that you must master in order to go on to understand the deeper things of God. See, I think so many times, once again, as I've already stated in a past teaching, so many times uh, we get people saved, uh, we hand them a Bible, we uh, tell them to come to church, but we don't walk them through the fundamentals and the basics of the faith. And until you are able to master the basics, everything else that you learn thereafter may be a bit disjointed. So we're calling this laying a firm foundation because the foundation is the strength of the building. You don't always see the foundation. You can't always appreciate it with the naked eye. But the, the foundation is, is the strength of the building. Without a firm foundation, everything that's built on top of it can either last for a long time or crumble shortly thereafter based upon how that foundation is laid. And I think so many churches uh, want to move past some of these very basic things sometimes and talk about things that feel good and give us goosebumps and that sort of thing. And I'm not always against that, but by the same token, this doctrinal foundation has to be laid for the Christian in order to go on to enjoy exponential growth from that point forward. Are you with me? All right. Praise God. So when you find Matthew chapter 19... Stand up with me, if you will, and let's honor the reading of the Holy Word of God. And we're going to read verses 16 through 22. Now, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad Because he had great wealth. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, I'm going to talk about the, what is sometimes referred to as the rich young ruler today. But before we do, I want to back up just a little bit and read a portion of our master text from the two previous teachings, which was in Hebrews uh, chapters 5 and 6. And I'm going to relegate it to the the chapter 6, the first two verses in chapter 6, because this gives us a list of the six crucial beliefs that we have to master to go on to um, understand the deeper things of God and to grow into maturity. Let's read this together and it will tell us what those are. Verse 1, Therefore let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, that's the first one, and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. We're going to be talking about all of those throughout this series. Now, I want to tell you up front, 
Uh, and actually, before I do that, um, I just want to let you know what the, the focus of today's teaching is. Last week, we talked about uh, repentance from dead works. And today, we're going to talk about this one, a faith in God, which I realize is kind of a, almost a generic type of term, but we're going to get into what it means this morning as it pertains to this context, all right? Now, again, what I want to tell you up front before we get into this is because I've been diligent as a pastor over the years to preach the gospel on several occasions, to give a gospel presentation on several occasions. I do that at least twice a year. Um, when the Christers show up, you know what I mean by that? The Christmas and the Easter people? The Christers. When those folks show up, I always give a very clear presentation of the gospel. So at least twice a year, and maybe more, I'm giving a very clear presentation of the gospel. So because I've done that for the last 11 and a half years since this church has been a church, most of you in the room have heard me do a, a version of this teaching that I'm going to do today at least once before and probably several times before. But some of you in the room have not heard me preach on this. And for you old timers that have been around for a while, please don't tune me out because um, what I hope to accomplish in repeating some of these concepts over and over sometimes is to get you to the point where you're able to master your own accurate presentation of the gospel to other people. So please listen closely. All right, so let's get back to the rich young ruler for just a moment. So I want to talk about the four fatal mistakes of the rich young ruler as we start getting into this. Well, his first fatal mistake was his lack of discernment in verse 17. And what I mean by that is the rich young man didn't really understand who Jesus was. See, he thought Jesus was a good teacher only. And Jesus answered the young man with an inescapable dilemma which is this, either Jesus is God in the flesh or he's not a good man at all. See, because it's only God who is truly good. No one is truly good apart from God. So we answer that question by saying, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Do you understand what he was saying? He was saying, do you understand who you're talking to, young man? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So he presented the young man with an inescapable dilemma. Either Jesus is God in the flesh or he's not good at all. All right? We're not going to camp out on that. Let's, we're going to move on to his second fatal mistake, which was his lack of understanding there in verses 17 and 20. And see, the young man had a faulty understanding about the way of salvation, didn't he? He supposed that salvation was earned by good works. And Jesus met that mistake by confronting him with the high demands of divine law. And the third fatal mistake was his spiritual pride. So when the young man said that he had kept the demands of the law, remember Jesus confronted him with the high demands of, of uh, divine law, and then he responded by saying, I've kept all these things. So when the young man said that he had kept the demands of the law, Jesus tested his heart by telling him to go sell all of his possessions and give to the poor. See, 
Jesus wasn't against the man's riches. I want you to understand that. Jesus wasn't against the man having riches, but he knew that this particular young man was harboring idolatry in his soul. So Jesus struck to the heart of the young man's idol, showing him that he had violated one of the, one of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. So this young man was congratulating himself on what a good person he was. And Jesus showed him, um, no, you're actually an idolater and you don't even know it. And I'm about to show you why. And that's the emphasis of the young man's fourth fatal mistake, which, of course, as I already said, is idolatry. See, the young man's most tragic mistake was not accepting the offer to come and follow Jesus as one of his disciples. What an offer! But he turned it down. He was offered such gracious hope for the sinner, but his idol, his money, meant too much to him. And so he ended up turning down that offer. But for this particular teaching, I'm not going to focus on those four things. I just want to focus on one of them, and that's the second one. And that's that the young man had a faulty understanding of the way of salvation, supposing that it could be earned through good works. Now, the painting that you see on the screen right now um, is a perfect illustration of how most of the world thinks that salvation in the afterlife can be earned. And this painting is in the Valley of the Kings in Egypt. And if you're, you look closely at that, that painting, what you see there is a set of scales. And on the left side of the scales, you see there's a human heart and a person about to be judged. This is the afterlife. This represents the afterlife. So on the left side of the scales is a human heart and a person about to be judged. On the right side of the scales is a feather and one of the Egyptian gods about to do the judging. So what this painting represents is the Egyptians' idea of how the gods weigh a person's heart and actions in life. And the heart represented a person's sins, and the feather represented his good works. Okay, If his sin was heavier than his good works, then the person's eternity would be damned. All right. Now, of course, the Egyptians were a culture of pagans who made up their own gods. Uh, and they invented their own gods. But this pagan idea of the judgment of mankind does reveal that mankind has always been afraid of the afterlife and has always tried to figure out how to get ready for it. It's always been the case. So I'd like to open this teaching today with a little bit of um, interaction uh, a little bit of a thought provoker, so you help me here. Uh, I want you to ask yourself right now, if I died today and I stood at the door of heaven and God asked me, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Now, before you answer that question, I know that many of you in the room right now would have the proper answer to that question. Uh, but I want to have a little uh, interaction. Again, I want you to help me out on this. Um, people who don't know God, just imagine people who might be asked that question at the door of heaven, people that don't know God. What do you think that some of their answers might be? Just shout it out. 
What was that? I was a good man. You said I was a good person. What else? You're a loving God. You're a loving God. Well, I'm going to get to that. I did good things. Go say, okay, good works. What else? I never killed anyone. I never killed anyone. So I never hurt anyone. That would be under that umbrella, I think. I never hurt anyone. What else? I helped many other people. Is that what you said? Yeah. I helped a lot of people. That's a good one. Anything else? Hmm? I gave to the poor. That's a really good one. Yeah. Anything else? One at a time. What now? I read the Bible. Okay. I attended church. That's that's a really good one. So it's basically good works. Yeah, basically good works. Yeah. Yeah. What else? All right. Well, I've got my own list, and some of it matches what you've already said. So I've lived a good life. You've you, you already said that one. I've been sincere. How many of you have heard that one? Well, I'm a sincere person. I've done nice things for people. You all said that one. I've never heard anyone. I heard that one called out. I've worked hard. I've been a good parent. I was a church member. Don said that one. I was baptized. I took communion. I gave to the church. So many of you already said many of those. And all of these things are commendable achievements, by the way. But none of them in and of themselves saves a person in the life hereafter. See, none of these things make a person born again. If any of these things are the basis for believing that a person will go to heaven... You need to understand that none of these things will get you there. None of these things will get you there. What does it mean, therefore, to have faith toward God? Well, you might want to write this down, and this is in your notes with some fill-in-the-blanks. Faith in God means resting in one's faith for salvation completely on Jesus in total trust in his work and not trusting in anything or anyone else. That's what it means. See, in this teaching, we're going to address the problem of self-righteousness. Now, a lot of people that I've heard say that they see a lot of self-righteousness in church people. But I would beg to differ. I see more self-righteousness outside of the church than I do in it. And let me explain what I mean by that. You have up on the screen here just something, a little, little statement that I put together based upon what I've heard people tell me over the years in uh, the discussions that I've had with people where I've shared my faith. And I've heard this sort of thing before. I'm a good moral person who would never hurt anybody. So God and me, we're on good terms. I don't need a shame-based religion like Christianity. It's so condemning. I don't think a loving God would ever send anyone to hell unless it would be someone like Adolf Hitler or Saddam Hussein. Folks, that's self-righteous, and I'm going to show you why. Here's what the Bible says about the condition of the human soul. Isaiah 64.6 says, We are all infected and impure, with sin. 
When we display our righteous deeds, or what we think are righteous, that's what it's referring to. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. Hmm. How about Psalm 36, verses 1 and 2? There is an oracle within my heart, David wrote, concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for in his eyes he flatters himself too much to hate or detect his sin. Most people that you talk to congratulate themselves on what good people they are, not understanding that they flatter themselves too much to even detect their sin, let alone hate it. See, we, we compare ourselves among ourselves. We compare ourselves to the Saddam Husseins of the world and the Adolf Hitlers of the world. We look at that and we go, hey, I must be doing pretty good. I haven't slaughtered six million Jews, so you know, I must be doing pretty good. The Bible says when we compare ourselves among ourselves, we are not wise. We can't compare ourselves to the worst offender of our society and think that we're still doing okay. And that's why Body Bauchman, who is a minister that I really like, said, hell will be filled with people who didn't drink, didn't cuss, and may even have been baptized. Why? Because not one of those things makes someone a Christian. You're just relying on the fact that uh, you don't drink alcohol or whatever else, or that you know, you got baptized once. If that's what you're relying on to get you to heaven, that's not enough. Now, I'm going to give you some bad news throughout this teaching, but I'm leading up to some good news, so please hang with me. So who is righteous then, according to the Bible? Who is truly righteous according to the Bible? Anyone? Correct. No one. No one is. In fact, here's what the scriptures say about that. In Romans 3, starting in verse 10, it says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who does good, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. See, even on our best day, our standard of righteousness is like filthy rags compared to God's standard, according to what we just read in Isaiah 64. Okay? So even, even the good things that we do are sometimes tainted with self-serving motives. And God sees that. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Guilty of breaking all of it. You've got to keep God's laws perfectly throughout your whole life if you expect to get to heaven apart from Jesus. See, this is why, folks, we need a savior, a scapegoat who will take up our cause. Because no one is good enough to get into heaven based upon their own merits. No one. But praise God, Jesus did take up our cause. He stepped in for those who believe in him. And he took upon himself the wrath of the Father against sin so that you and I could be declared not guilty. Isn't that great news? All right. So I want to I tell you what Jesus said of himself, and I want to ask you what your response is to Jesus' claims about himself. He first of all said, he is the only way to the Father. 
can't get to the Father except through Jesus. There's not multiple ways to God. God shows one. And sometimes people will say, well, isn't that kind of unfair? I mean, I mean, what about all these other religions? Well, let's face it, folks. God is God. If he wanted to choose one way, he has the right to do that. And it's through Jesus, because Jesus is the only one that died for your sins so that you wouldn't have to. Jesus also said of himself that he is one with the Father in John 10, 30. He said that he is the gate through which all must pass to get to salvation, John 10, 9. He also said this, that those who do not believe in him will be condemned, but those who believe will have everlasting life in John 3.18. And this is the one that I want to focus on, John 3.18, that those who do not believe will be condemned. And why is that? I mean, what if they're good people? Well, we've already established that no one is truly righteous in God's eyes. But I want to illustrate this point further with a little illustration here. I want to ask yourself how you measure up. I want to use this visual, if I may. Um, let's imagine that righteousness is measured in height. Okay, the taller a person is, the more righteous they are. All right, so let's imagine that a mobster is really, really short. Okay, so not, not, a, not a high level of righteousness at all. So spiritually speaking, the, right, the, the, the mobster is really short. All right. How about a regular guy, you know, regular height, I mean, just, you know, an average level of righteousness. So he's, uh, he's uh, of average height. But then let's imagine people like Billy Graham and Mother Teresa are really, really tall in stature because they represent some of the, the upper echelon of people who are very righteous in deed and in thought, what have you. But let's imagine, though, that God's standard of righteousness is like from here to the moon. Do you like that illustration? I did that myself. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Sometimes I have to congratulate myself on these little things, these little, these little victories, these little... Anyway... So, yeah, so it, it, whether you're Billy Graham or whether you're the mobster, your level of righteousness falls way, way short of God's standard of righteousness. So let's go, talk about God's moral law for a few minutes because the Ten Commandments, as an example, are God's minimum requirements for receiving salvation and eternal life. Now, remember, the scriptures state that even if you even fail in one area of God's laws, you're guilty of breaking the entire law of God. That's James 2.10. And some people might say, well, how's that fair? You break one law, you break the entire law of God. Let me just give you a little example of that. If, if you commit murder and you've been a good person all your life and then just a fit of passion, you commit murder. And you stand before the judge, and uh, you say, Judge, I've been, a, I've been a good person all my life, and uh, this is just a first-time offense, and uh, you know, I've never done anything like this before, and I promise I won't ever do it again. So I think that based upon my track record, you ought to let me off. What do you think the judge is going to say? Oh, you've been a good person all, uh, uh, up until this point? Oh, well, just forget it. <laughs> I don't think so. 
If you commit murder, regardless of what your previous track record is, you have smashed our judicial laws to a thousand pieces and you're going down. That's what God's laws are like. So I'm going to go through some of the Ten Commandments, not all of them, but I'm going to go through some of the Ten Commandments and show how you measure up, just demonstrate how you and I might measure up. So the first commandment says this, you shall have no other gods before me. So how many of you in the room, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you in the room could say, I've always kept this commandment, I've always kept God as the first in my life? No, we probably haven't. We've probably made many things um, a priority above God. Our career, a person, our money, sports. There's lots of things that take priority over God, and that's called idolatry. When you place any emphasis above God, if he's not the highest echelon, if your life doesn't revolve around God, see, if you just make God just a little bit of a, a peripheral thing over here, along with your sports or your, you know, your favorite hobbies or whatever else, and he just, he's just part of a peripheral part of your life, that's idolatry. God needs to be the top priority in your life, okay? So I don't think any of us can say that we've kept this commandment perfectly all the time. I think all of us have broken that most basic commandment. How about the second commandment? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Once again, have you ever used God's name as a four-letter filth word that you would normally use to express disgust? That's called blasphemy, and it's a very, very serious sin in God's eyes, okay? So if you've ever done that, you've smashed that law into a thousand pieces. Using God's holy, precious, majestic name and bringing it down to the level of a four-letter filth word that you would normally use to express disgust. Now, if you use my mother's name as a four-letter filth word to express disgust, I might be tempted to do something to you, right? And I think we all feel that way, or hopefully we do about our mothers. But imagine using God's name like that. It's blasphemy, blasphemy. God hates that. All right, let's look at another one. Honor your father and mother. How many of you have ever disobeyed your parents, spoken about them behind their backs, spoken disrespectfully to them, to their faces? Um, there's many, many ways we dishonor our father and mother, ignore them in their time of need. I mean, there's many ways that we do that. And God hates that. God hates that. God wants you to honor your father and your mother. We've all broken that law uh, from time to time, I believe. But then there is, you shall not kill or murder is, is the sixth commandment. And here's where I can hear many of you say, well, you know, Andy, I've, I've never committed murder. I've never killed anyone. Okay, well, fast forward to the New Testament. And here's what Jesus said about this in Matthew chapter 5. He said, you have heard that the law of Moses says you shall not commit murder. But I say that if anyone who is angry with his brother, and the context is angry without cause, if anyone is angry with his brother, will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, which is an Aramaic term for you idiot, something insulting like that. Yeah, that's kind of what that means. Uh, anyone, anyone who says to his brother, you Raka, is, is answerable to the high court. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. So 
basically what Jesus is getting at is that if the anger is unjustified and you hate someone enough to murder their reputation out in the community, that's a form of murder. And, and he looks at that as equal to, that's what he's saying, isn't it? You've heard the law of Moses says you should not commit murder, but I say anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Okay, I think we've all busted that up into a thousand pieces. Here's another one. You shall not commit adultery. And here again, many of you in the room could say, Andy, I've never committed adultery. I've never done that. Good for you. Jesus went on to say, in the book of Matthew, New Testament, you have heard that the law of Moses says you shall not commit adultery. But I say, if you even look upon a woman with lust, you have already committed adultery with her in your heart. See, I want you to understand what Jesus was doing. Jesus was pushing the standard out beyond human performance. Jesus was pushing, he, he was saying, okay, you Jews think that you followed the law to the letter. I want to show you what God's standard is. And he was pushing the standard out beyond what people thought that they were doing uh, outwardly and saying, your outward performance is not enough. Jesus is looking at your heart. Uh, God the Father, Jesus, Jesus was saying, God the Father, he's looking at your heart. So it's not enough just to clean yourself up out on the, on the outside God's looking at the heart. That's why he said to the Pharisees, you are whitewashed tombs. You clean yourself up so nicely on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of corruption and dead men's bones. Do you remember that? So Jesus was pushing the standard out beyond human performance. Let's look at this one. The eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Here again, some of you in the room may be able to say, well, I've never stolen anything. Okay, now wait a minute. Have you ever stolen time from your boss on the job? Have you ever stolen something small, even if it was a paper clip from work? That wasn't yours. That's theft. That's theft. And, and it's, it's something that God sees and judges. Here's another one. You shall not bear false testimony or lie. Some of you can say, well, Andy, I'm not a liar. Folks, listen, how many lies do you have to tell to become a liar? Let me ask you this question. How many people do you have to kill to become a murderer? One. In God's judicial system, the first time that you knowingly deceived someone, you became a liar. I mean, again, I'm, how many lies do you have to tell before you become a liar? You, you get to 37 and blazoned across your head is a scarlet letter, L for liar. No, it doesn't work that way, does it? No. The, the first time that you knowingly deceive someone in God's judicial system, you became a liar. So for those who are attempting to, to earn their salvation based upon their good moral conduct... I want you to know what God's standard is. Here's God's standard for you to earn your salvation. Keep all the commandments perfectly without a single slip up your entire life, and then you'll be saved. That's God's standard. See, but no one has done that. You were busting God's laws into a thousand pieces by the time you were two years old. 
We, we were born with a sin nature. That's why you don't have to teach a child to lie. You don't have to teach a child to throw temper tantrums out of selfishness because sin is inborn in the person from the time of their birth, actually before that. They were, they were infected with sin in their mother's wombs, we were. See, no one has kept God's commands. That's the reason that God's commands exist to show us our depravity. God's commands are a mirror to show us how far short we fall of his standards. But someone might say, well, God's a loving God, so he'll overlook my sins, right? Wrong. Wrong. See, God is a righteous judge. See, a righteous judge punishes crime. I want to go back to my courtroom analogy for just a moment. Let's say that you were standing before a judge and you'd just been convicted of some very terrible crimes. Um, murder, extortion, and armed robbery. And you stand before the judge and again you give him this song and dance of, oh, well, you know what, judge, I've never done this sort of thing before. This is the first time I've ever done this. Uh, you know, I'd hit a really rough patch in my life and I just lost my head. And, uh, you know, I, I, I robbed a 7-Eleven um, at gunpoint and one thing led to another and, you know, the attendant ends up getting shot and, and dies. And I've never done a thing like that before and I promise I won't, won't ever do it again. And judge, I do believe this about you. I believe that you're a good man. And because you're a good man, and because I've never done this sort of thing before, I, I believe that you're just going to go easy on me and let me off the hook this time. And the judge in that situation would probably shake his head and roll his eyes. And then he would say, well, you know what? You should be sorry for what you did. It was very wrong. But you are right about one thing. I am a good man. And because I'm a good man, I'm going to see to it that justice is done and that you are punished to the fullest extent of the law for your crimes. See, if a, if a judge overlooked those crimes and brushed them aside, he wouldn't be a good judge anymore, would he? He'd be a corrupt judge. So a good, righteous judge will punish crime wherever it's found. Folks, I want to let you know, God is a righteous judge. He loves justice. So if we're relying on our conduct to be saved, we're going to be forced to face the fact that when we stand before God, that in life we were nothing but lying, thieving, blaspheming, murderous, idol-worshiping adulterers who have no alibi. That's what we are. Hang with me. I've just got a little bit more bad news, and I'm going to get to some good news. Okay? So in looking at this illustration on the screen here, I want you to understand that there is an infinitely wide gap between our sin and God's standard of righteousness that is impossible to bridge because we flaunted God's laws repeatedly. And, and just like our judicial system here on earth, um, violation of law in heaven must be punished. See, the penalty is eternal separation from God in a place set aside for the devil and his angels called hell. That's the eternal prison for those that 
are relying on their own righteousness, which is not righteousness at all. But Jesus came to pay your fine himself. Jesus, look at the screen, was rocketed down to earth in order to bridge the gap between our sinfulness and God's perfect righteousness. And we get in on that deal just by repenting and placing our faith in Jesus. Yeah. Praise God. Praise God. So Jesus took your blame is what we're leading up to here. Jesus took your blame. And this is the gospel, folks. This is what we need to be telling people. Jesus took your blame. See, taking the form of frail humanity, God in flesh, Jesus Christ, took upon himself the punishment for all of mankind's sins so that those who place their faith in him would be saved. You know, Jesus, if you want to put it this way, is your stand-in. He's your substitute, making all who believe in him justified. And I love that word justified. And it goes back to the scripture I shared during communion time, 2 Corinthians 5.21, which once again says, he who had no sin became sin for us so that in him we might be declared the righteousness of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let me give you a little bit more scripture to encourage you. So you and I can be declared now not Guilty. We can be declared not guilty. Look at what it says in Romans 3. No one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. And it goes on. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standards. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for our sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. And when you accept that free offer of salvation, you're translated out of the kingdom of darkness, the Bible says, into the kingdom of God's dear son. It's just receiving and believing. John 1.12 says that uh, when we believe and receive, we become the children of God. Praise God. So with that in mind, folks, we just need to begin seeing ourselves through the eyes of grace, don't we? Begin seeing yourself through the eyes of grace because there's many people that they come to God and they still struggle with this concept of seeing themselves as totally, completely forgiven. And so we need to begin seeing ourselves through the eyes of grace. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that you and me, doing what we've done, can now be called the children of God in spite of all that. He washes the slate clean, doesn't he? Hallelujah. I've got a homework assignment for you. If you want to go home and read the third chapter of Romans, particularly verses 9 through 31, 
Uh, you'll really be encouraged by that. I, I enjoy the New Living Translation in, in Romans 3 just because it brings out the truths in that a little bit more clearly for me in, in, in Romans 3 in particular. But, you know, any version of the Bible will get that message across. It's just in the New Living Translation for that particular chapter. It just seems to bring it out a, a little bit more clearly. All right, we're almost done. So the message that we bear then, you and I, and once again, before I, before I get to that, I just want to reiterate the focus of the series that we're doing, um, the six crucial beliefs that all Christians must master to go on to maturity in the Lord. If you don't have these six things down as your foundation, you're going to struggle in other areas of your life and, and growing in maturity and having a stable Christian life later on. But what I've just given you today, faith in God, is Hebrews uh, chapter 6 says... Uh, that's the context of it. Believing in Jesus and his merits for your salvation, not your own merits. Okay? So that's the basis of, that's the foundation and the understanding or the context, if you will, of uh, how it used that phrase of faith in God in Hebrews chapter 6. So what I just gave you was, number one, that foundational truth that lays that foundation for you, but it's also a presentation of the gospel that you can then share and I realize that I've been talking for, what, a half an hour, however long I've been talking. And I realize that not every conversation that you're going to get into with people is going to be a half an hour long. Sometimes you'll have to distill it down into five minutes. So what I might suggest is take this teaching. It's going to be posted on the website uh, tonight. And go back and listen to it again. And, and this is what I've done. I, folks, I've shared my faith countless times. And sometimes I'll come away from those conversations going, uh, I got stumped on that one. I didn't know how to answer that question. That's never going to happen to me again. And I go back and I study that out. And over time, you develop um, some answers to some of the things that you hear most commonly. And some of the things that you hear most commonly in this culture is, hey, I don't, I don't need the Bible. I don't need Jesus. I'm a good person. You know, me and God, you know, we're like this. You know, of course, they're out carousing and doing crazy stuff and living completely in violation of what God's commands are. But they think they're in God's good graces because I'm a good person. Would never hurt anyone. We need to shatter that tragic thinking because many people are splitting hell wide open who think they're good people. We need to help them understand through the law that no, none of us are good. And that's why we need a savior. But you can be declared not guilty. You can have all your sins wiped away. That is the message that we bear. However you articulate it, that is the message that we bear. So it's that right there that we need to be prepared in uh, our gospel proclamations. But I want to give you a couple of really important uh, scriptures as we close here from the third chapter of John. And this kind of encapsulates the teaching today. So this is going to kind of tie up all the loose ends and summarize our teaching today with these two short passages in the book of John. And the first one is John 3.36. This is the condition of, of mankind right here. All who believe in God's Son have eternal life. Those who do not obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but the wrath of God remains upon them. But that's not a message that a lot, a lot of people like to talk about these. The wrath of God? God, God is a God of wrath? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, he's going to... The, 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 
righteous fist of God's wrath is going to smash sin and everything involved with sin into a thousand pieces one day. And you don't want to be in the way when that happens. The only way to get out of the way is to come to Jesus and to allow him to forgive you of all your sins and you take his righteousness onto your account and allow him to forgive you of all the junk that you've ever done and cast it in the sea of forgetfulness and remember it no more. Cast it as far as the east is from the west and remember it no more. And that is the message of what Jesus said in the following verses. John 3, 16 and 17. Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. If you were to memorize those two verses, those two passages right there, that's a very concise presentation of the gospel right there. The world is in, is in slavery to sin and under the wrath of God, but there's a way to escape his wrath, and it's through Jesus. Was that clear enough? All right, praise God. Hallelujah. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Andy Robbins and Blessed Life Fellowship. For more teaching and ministry resources, go to the church website at www.blessedlifefellowship.org. Thanks for listening, and may God's grace and favor shine on you.